Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Hi, I'm Jerry Boyer. Welcome to Meeting of Minds podcast. Back again with us is David Bonson. Bon- David is the uh, founder of the Bonson Group. He is one of the most successful financial advisors in the country. By the way, if you haven't seen it already and you haven't gotten it, go out and get full-time work and the meaning of life. Uh, full-time work and the meaning of life. Uh, this is an extremely important book that could change the course, not just of your life, but of the life of our nation. Um, But we're not talking about that book today. We're talking about, in some sense, the application of it. How uh, David and I are working together um, in a way that is using the position that we have as workers, as entrepreneurs, to influence the culture. Um, So, before we get into that, let me uh, um, have David invite, excuse me, not invite, but <laughs> welcome David back to the show. David, thanks for joining us. So good to be back with you. Okay. So corporate engagement, proxy voting, proposals. Um, I can tell you I've looked long and hard for people who are financial professionals, who are Christians and conservatives who have been willing to put their name on the line and say to the companies they're invested in, I have concerns and I want to talk to you about those concerns. So we can talk about why others have been hesitant, but I'd rather focus on the good. Uh, I suggested this idea to you and you said, yes. Why did you say yes? Well, I care very much in the ver- in the concept. I think that there is a need for this engagement and and uh, this process. But but see, it is more than just companies are doing things that's making me upset. Um, I think that we share a belief that all at once there is a cultural and um, economic opportunity here. As an investment manager and and as an investor myself, um, I care about the return on investment and I care about the return on invested capital. And I think that um, it would be very wise for people who are pursuing the best uh, optimal return on their capital to take an interest in engaging with those that are in a lot of ways allocators and um, stewards of that capital. But on the cultural side, I believe that there are things being done in corporate America, in the uh, public equity universe that are contrary to the best interest of our economy. One could say, well, aren't you also worried about that they're uh, contrary to the best interest of our culture? The answer is yes. Um, but see that I have private property ownership of, uh, units of ownership of some of these companies. And I do not 
have um, private property ownership of the things working against our culture at the Museum of Modern Art. I personally, unlike Bill Ackman um, and, and others, don't have any skin in the game at Harvard University. There's a local community college that's doing all kinds of awful thing. I don't have skin in the game there. I said yes to you because all at once, my interest and my cultural agenda and uh, my a, a venue for the defense of a free and virtuous society all came together. And I really wish it's sort of a subsidiarity. It's an ownership. It's a, a, a kind of a stakeholder model of engagement. I wish that people would become activists around things that uh, they're engaged in. And um, uh, too often, I just don't believe we're doing that. So it aligned with your work. It aligned with your full-time work. Um, it was, you were, you're, you're a financial advisor, you're an investor. Um, and so engaging with companies was not taking you away. Uh, and, and look, activism sometimes is worth taking people away. You can go Saturday and protest at an abortion clinic or something, but that's not your day job. You're not a professional activist, right? Or dealing with the community college. But you are, you are a professional investor. You are a, a financial professional. And so your work, your day job, your full-time job, this is simply an extension of that. It's part of your work. You're look I mean, you're looking out for your clients. If corporations are doing things that are foolish, telling them not to do those foolish things is a way of protecting the interest of your clients. Yeah, and I think, I think that the... Um area in which you and I share a certain uh, kind of pause about the way others that might be like-minded in a lot of ways approach this is that they're uncomfortable attaching uh, their engagement, both the mode of engagement, but the motivation of engagement to that very issue. In other words, there are banks doing bad things and I don't own those banks and all things being equal, I would love for those banks to not do bad things. I would. But I don't have the right to um, go after those banks the way I do the banks that I own as an intermediary, as a fiduciary intermediary, I should add. Um, when I own certain companies on behalf of clients, mm. I have an obligation to pursue the best possible return. The clients are paying me a fee to do that. The same is true for the pursuits I have within my own portfolio. Um, and with other companies, I simply don't have that degree of attachment. And so by, by making a point that I want free speech, I want private property, I want an open dialogue, I want some of these things to take place, and that these things ultimately lead to the greatest return on capital, I think you get a chance to, cre uh, to formulate a really holistic um, rationale for properly ordered shareholder engagement. So JP Morgan is in your portfolio. Bank of America is not. So it's, you don't have a responsibility to say, Bank of America, why did you debank de this ministry to Ugandan widows and orphans? Now, there's a different financial advisor who reached out to me about that, but as as a JP Morgan shareholder, you reached out and not only did you reach out, this became maybe the major in corporate engagement event of last year. Um, you want to talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, and I would add, I'm not totally sure that it um, was limited to the major shareholder engagement event of 2023, because I still believe the fruits of what took place in 2023 will will play out into 24 and thereafter. Um, and and that we are continuing to see certain fruits of some things that that largely, I believe, started with with some of that process. Are you referring now, to Jamie Dimon at Davos? What he said? Well, I, I think it started with what Jamie Dimon said at our shareholder meeting mm-hmm. when he went out and basically after what had been about five weeks of brutal press, of cover story in the Wall Street Journal, an op-ed that I wrote in the Wall Street Journal, dozens of Fox News, Fox Business, CNBC, Bloomberg appearances, um, and of course, ADF representing multiple state attorney generals who, in some cases, even apart from ADF, they brought their own cases, state attorney generals and state treasurers uh, getting fired up around this issue. And all of that awareness came about because we put a resolution uh, to go on the shareholder docket, uh, basically requesting them to run an analysis of whether or not there had been debanking and what if they had proper protocols in place to keep uh, discrimination from taking place against people of a certain political or religious persuasion. Uh, they chose to uh, deny the request to have this uh, not, re, not I do not mean they chose to say we're against you do uh, this this proposal passing. They said we won't even put the proposal on the docket. Uh, our resolution was in perfectly good order within my rights as a shareholder. I'd been a shareholder since March 6, 2009. I remember the purchase date well because it was the bottom of the market. So mm. yes, I've done quite well in that investment. Yes, but it, but it was um. Uh, uh, just absolutely bizarre decision on their part that I remain confused by now. You've seen it even more recently with Apple and another matter. Why these companies deny shareholder rights and, and when they're in uh, good order is beyond me because all they did is give us the free publicity. The SEC on appeal ruled in our favor, and that's really what brought a limelight on the issue. That's uh, shined a spotlight on the issue. And so from there, the first step before we get to Davos was the CEO of uh, JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon, arguably, maybe he's not, he's not Elon Musk or Tim Cook, but he's in the top five most well-known CEOs Mm -hmm. in corporate America. Um, A lot more people would know his name than the CEO of Microsoft or the CEO of NVIDIA the the CEO of IBM. I mean, this is this is America's banker, as they like to say, and for good reason. This is an incredibly gifted uh, uh, finance executive with yes. a great, a tremendous track record of what they've done at their bank. One of the reasons we're we're proud to be owners in the bank. However, he said we will not debank. There has been no debanking. There will be no debanking. You have my word. And that was in direct response specifically to my speech at the shareholder meeting. Um, I think that he had every there's all kinds of reasons to believe what he could have done is said, look, we don't want to do a lot of debanking. But if we think someone gets a little too crazy or we think they lean into some uh, faith stuff we don't like or political stuff, we will. That's not what he said. He did not pull a kind of a. First Amendment right of we don't have to bank for customers we don't want. He could have, but he didn't. Hmm. 
Um, I would have, by the way, been more sympathetic to that argument. I still don't think it would have passed muster. I think that it, it, you can make an argument that as a gatekeeper in finance, that they'd have a tough time saying that they want to have the right to exercise arbitrary discretion over who they'll work with and who they won't. Um, but nevertheless, they were really crystal clear that they just weren't doing it, weren't going to do it. And so I think it now put a pressure on their middle managers who obviously, as you and I know, had been doing it. Right. Not a ton, but there were enough cases that it, it caused us to get fired up. About so it. they didn't make the argument, it's our company, we can do what we want. They said, we're not going to debank along political or religious lines. They most certainly did. And they said it emphatically. And it put Jamie Dimon on the record. And since then, um, I believe, and I think this is where you're going with the most recent Davos lines. It also took place in an event here in New York City with Andrew Sorkin, who's being interviewed. And he was pleading with people to, uh, in center left America to better understand people of faith, to better understand people on the right. He doesn't agree with a lot of it. But, you know, he also famously at one point pushed back hard on AOC about uh, why his bank continues to finance oil and gas. Um, I don't I don't want to say that our resolution pushed him back to the middle. I candidly think he's always been a pretty moderate. What, I think he said it would be the road to hell. Yeah, he um, did. Uh, I, I might have been a different member of the squad, but um, uh, but whatever. He said it would be the road to hell for, to yeah. divest from fossil fuels. And, and I, you know, I should point out that the interaction that you had that with um, JP Morgan, it's not just at the annual meeting, there've been other meetings. Uh, it's been a point of emphasis. You have a broken trust relationship with half of the country. Uh, there needs to be respect. There needs to be engagement. You need to rebuild that trust. And it seems to me what he said to whether, whether it's because of that, I mean, who knows, right? But it seems whether it's because of that engagement, um, that you've done, but it is in fact what you asked for. <laughs> you asked for that rebuilding of trust, and that seemed to be, ex in fact, I mean, the theme at Davos that, that year was rebuilding trust. Um, and uh, he he did what we asked him to do. Whether he did it because we asked him to do it or not, I don't know. But nothing else got to his level, and that's one of the things about this kind of corporate engagement that people don't realize. You can you can go on TV and complain in conservative media, Disney's woke, blah 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 blah. You know what 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 a CEO and a board hear is what's on the ballot that year because they have to. Yeah. It's on the proxy card. They have to read it. They have to take a position. You break through all that miasma. If you're a shareholder who puts a proposal forward, you are now up at the top of Mount Olympus. If, if only for three minutes, you're there and can make your case to them. So it seems to me that's probably, that might've been the first time Jamie Dimon even heard. I'm, I'm not saying when you gave your speech, maybe when he saw your proposal or when they lost before the SEC, but your proposal might've been the first time that Jamie Dimon even heard about what had, what had happened to Ambassador Brownback. I, I believe it was, Jerry, and I believe that there's a lot of other examples in your engagements and, and um, so forth that a lot of our listeners right now would be shocked to know that so many investor relations people and C-suite people at publicly held companies in America live in an echo chamber. 
They likely went to a very good school, but very left-leaning. They likely live in a very affluent neighborhood, but probably often very left-leaning. Then I think that one of the fascinating things to me about the Netflix deal when Dave Chappelle's controversial comments on the trans community came out was not that people were for it or against it. You had all that stuff. I already know there's a culture war. What fascinated me was that I was watching in real time Netflix find out that half of the country existed. Yes. That they did that they did not know existed. They didn't. And that and one of the reasons they capitulated so quickly and ended up defending Dave and keeping the stuff on air was that it was a byproduct of them saying, wait a second, we would kick Dave off in a second if we thought that all of our customers are as mad at Dave as the, some of the, the trans activists. We didn't know that apparently not everyone is. And, and I think that that's largely what Jamie's been saying lately is just encouraging people on some of the other side of some of these cultural and political issues to understand that there's a whole nother side out there and it behooves us to kind of, if we're going to be pluralist, let's be a little more pluralistic. Hmm. It cuts both ways. But, you know, I think that you have even taught me and, and the work you and Susan have done at Boyer Research. I did not know before we started some of these engagements, Jerry, that these investor relations departments were so willing to converse. Now, some people would say, don't be naive just because they take a couple phone calls and they're worried about you becoming an adjutant doesn't mean they're playing ball. And, and that may be true. There may be some for whom this is just if they're law firms, they're running up the billables. And if they're in-house, they're just sort of trying to see if they can't contain certain things from becoming more of a nuisance. But I'm convinced that there's a lot more willingness to have conversations out there even if the outcomes don't always go yet right where we want them, I'm extremely encouraged by how much can get done from engaging in conversation. And as, as you've pointed out in the past, we just weren't having those conversations before. So what did we think was going to happen? I, we didn't think anything was going to happen. And then it did happen. The, co the corporations got ideologically captured because one side showed up. What surprised, no. what surprised me about all this is how quickly the ESG bubble has collapsed. No. I, I'm not surprised that the institutions rotted without our influence. Um, I'm not surprised that we had an effect. I'm surprised how quick, I mean, it, it, there was like a Jericho thing. The walls have come down faster than I think I'm an optimist. I am theologically, eschatologically optimistic. Yeah. And I I didn't anticipate how well all this would go. Uh, let's talk about another company that you engaged with, Exxon, world's biggest energy company. Um, and this was, I would say, a more friendly engagement than with JP. Not that it was unfriendly with JP Morgan Chase. You're an investor. You like the company. It's a great company. It was, but it was more like a course corrector from a friend. Uh, with Exxon, I think it was even more like, sort of a positive kind of engagement. Do you want to say anything about that experience? Well, you know, much like uh, your point a moment ago that it's possible the first time Jamie Dimon heard what happened with Sam Brown back and then he ended up being willing to go on the record saying we will not debank um, Christians and conservatives. I, I, there's no question that the first, since the ESG craze began and since uh, there were high-profile attempts from the other side, the anti-fossil fuel extremist to go after Exxon, there's no question that Exxon did not say anything publicly to defend themselves. 
Now, they didn't just totally lay down and agree to all of a sudden stop drilling. They were still an oil and gas company, but they were on the defensive and in a profound way. Um, when you read their shareholder reports, they have to go show how much they're, they're trying to spend in renewables. They have to commit to certain future carbon targets that are being made up out of thin air. There's no possible way anyone can know if they're going to reach those or not. All of this is a byproduct of the efficacy of the anti-fossil left. Exxon defended themselves as an oil company for the first time at the shareholder meeting in 2023. And it was, again, uh, after a resolution I had put forward. It was a friendly resolution in line with the mission of Exxon. Uh, did not end up passing. They obviously, have, for a lot of reasons, we know where the proxies are in some of this stuff, but fundamentally they were um, put in a position that now it seems to me to have emboldened them, that they're coming out swinging. And that's what I meant about 2024. A lot of this momentum is continuing that Exxon's willing to fight back against some of those that are essentially trying to shut them down, that represent an existential threat to their business. They, um, Darren Woods, the CEO, very responded to your um, speech very vociferously. You invited them to defend what they do for a living. And he came out and did that with vigor. Later on in the meeting, there was a proposal from a left-wing group, as you sow, a Soros-funded group. I, I know everyone's Soros, Soros, but in this case, it's publicly public knowledge. The Soros Foundation has given them money, given them money, anti-fossil fuel. They attacked, as you sow, and the proponent, um, who had acted acted as a hostile witness in litigation against the company. It's hard to argue I'm for the company. It's hard to argue I'm just a shareholder activist and I'm here for the good of the company if you've helped litigants against the company, right? Um, it called, they called, as you sow, what you, an adversary of the company. Um, later on last year, I'm sure it was already in the works, but they proudly admitted a major expansion in natural gas. Um, and around the time of this um, conversation, they've announced that they are suing Arjuna Capital, which is one of the most aggressive anti-fossil fuel uh, funds out there. It's a small fund. Basically, they buy enough shares to put all these proposals forward. So they're essentially they're activists kind of pretending to be investors. I mean, I, they're literally investors, but it's clear that they they essentially their business model is to be activists, to be a pain in the neck to energy companies. Um, so again, I don't know if they did it because you asked, but they sure did what you asked. Uh, so, uh, for whatever reason, things are really moving in the right direction, uh, with JP Morgan Chase, I think, and especially with Exxon. So the, the, I, you know, when, when I first started talking to people about this several years ago, the almost universal consensus is don't bother. It won't work. Um, ESG is unbeatable. Well, that, that, that's, uh, that, that did not age well. Well, and, and I think that the one thing I want to encourage people out there to understand is that part of the perfect storm is not only that a lot of the good guys are activated, there, we've had some success, there's a, a lot more pushback nationally against some of the, the cultural moment where 2020 kind of seems to have been peak insanity, but I don't want people that are not necessarily versed in, in capital markets and Wall Street and the reality of investing to underestimate how much of it is also just the marriage of convenience with performance. ESG never 
would have gotten the peak popularity it got if it didn't cyclically align with a period in which energy was underperforming and low carbon intensive big tech was outperforming. Hmm. And one of the things that has been so profoundly useful in exposing the virtue signaling Phariseeism of most ESG advocates is that it fell apart, not merely because Fox News started complaining about Larry Fink. It fell apart because energy as a sector was up 40% in 2021, up 40% in 2022, and big tech fell 50% in 2022. And even though tech had a big comeback in 23, it's nowhere near its highs from 2021. And so, so much of the ESG moment was just a matter of coincidental, it was, a, it was predicated by a lie that there was no trade-off that you could have something and get rid of nothing. And what you could get was virtue and penance and some sort of moral superiority, but that you didn't have to give up anything. In fact, you could get a better return. And that was just completely untrue. And and it got uh, manifestly shown as untrue over the last several years. It's what Aswath Damodaran said on your podcast. Yes, capital record. What did he say? Forgiveness without Lent or something like that. Right. Or Lent yes. without without repentance or fasting. Yeah. So the alleged ESG alpha overperformance was just just plain old sector sector. You know, an amateur mistake. I'm really seriously. Yeah. I mean, whenever you're looking at comparative performance, you have to adjust for for sector relative performance. Um, yeah. So it, right. it fell apart because it wasn't profitable anymore. I mean, the, the ideologues, the true believers, they're still true believers. But the people who are actually financial pros now see it, it hasn't helped. It's it's hurt. It's hurt the financial interest of the companies. But I also think that like those who, who sit around hand wringing and, and dare I say, sometimes even bedwetting about how Wall Street are all true believers and what are we going to do? Uh, no, they're not. They're marketers. And ESG was imminently marketable. Now, maybe what I'm accusing them of is even morally worse. But I'm just simply saying, if all of a sudden something becomes sellable, pooled mortgage bonds in 2006 or ESG in 2019, I'm sorry, they're going to sell it. And it doesn't mean that they were really out to shut down oil and gas. It was just that this pharisaical marketing gimmick was worth trillions of dollars of asset flows. And, you know, it's not just that that's reversed. It's not just that ESG has kind of moved the other way. You are seeing totally aligned ESG-type managers take it out of their pitch books. Yes. It's, it's not just that it isn't the advantage it used to be. It's become a disadvantage. It is a toxic brand. It's a toxic brand. Even the, even the true good. believers are talking about... The ones who still want to keep doing it, they're saying, let's call it something different so that nobody notices. That's um, right. So, so you've got other stuff coming up this year. Uh, so you're you're staying in this corporate engagement um, arena. Yeah, and probably we'll have to, Jerry, now uh, for uh, the remainder of my life on this side of glory. Uh, I won't have to do a lot of shareholder activism in heaven, the new heavens and new earth. <laughs> but um, I don't expect that there will be 
people doing things that go against the best interests of their shareholders for the foreseeable future. And therefore, as a fiduciary and an engaged investor, this passion is going nowhere and we'll stay partnered together. One of the things that I can't figure out is how financial advisors can think that they shouldn't be doing this. I mean, can you really can you really argue that you're fully fiduciary uh, if you're telling clients, you take the proxy statement, I don't know how to fill it out, you do it, knowing that 80% of them throw it in the garbage. I mean, maybe that's a conversation, maybe that might be too aggressive, but is, you know, is it fiduciary for an advisor to leave this unaddressed when it's become such a big issue? Well, at the, at the risk of sounding like I'm talking my own book here, which is most certainly, you know, self-promotion is not something I do. But I will say uh, we had a, another conversation uh, on air uh, about my criticism of the work ethic of pastors. And let me just say in this context that perhaps uh, why some advisors are willing to take the approach they take that you've described is not any more complicated than the work ethic of many financial advisors. It's hard. It's hard work. It's detailed, hard work. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. David Bonson from the Bonson Group. Thank you so much for your new book, uh, full time uh, for appearing on the show and for the work that you continue to do on behalf of uh, really all the shareholders, not just your shareholders, but any shareholder in the company you're engaging with is benefiting from this. So thank you for all of that, David. And thank you as well. I'm Jerry Boyer. You've been listening to Meeting of Minds.